On a Friday morning, it is February the 24th. Holy cannoli, it's, we're almost done with February, which means we're almost done with meteorological winter. There's going to be half the weather people in the country that are like, nobody cares about that. And the rest of us are like, hey, it's, you know, it's something to talk about. So let's talk about it. This morning, though, we do have something to talk about. There is some fog around Central Florida. Let's take a live look outside. This is our tower cam shot in downtown Orlando. Now, granted, understand this tower cam is on the top of one of the buildings. So, you know, we're a couple of hundred feet up. But nevertheless, we have been tracking a little bit of fog out the door. Happy to report, though, as we wake up this morning morning there is nothing showing up on our first warning live doppler radar you got some moisture in terms of low cloudiness and fog but no rainfall so our friday morning is not looking too bad as i type visibility and get that the fog though is something we've been watching particularly thick in spots like when i left the house no fog when i got back to the house i'm like you know i'm in lando calrissian's world here so just a heads up, you can kind of see it around I-4, West Volusia, back over to Daytona Beach even. Uh, and then uh, through Sanford, particularly thick, at least according to all the latest sites, all the way down toward Legoland and if you're commuting down toward Sanford or uh, uh, toward Tampa. So heads up on that, my friends. Otherwise, nothing going on in the world of weather. Nice, quiet conditions. Take a look at these temperatures around Central Florida. 66 degrees in Orlando. I like it. It's comfortable. It's certainly milder than we should be, but it doesn't feel all that bad. My son has a trikathon at school. Don't have to have him in that big, thick, heavy coat, so that's always good. 71 degrees in Leesburg, 69 in the villages, 64 degrees in Daytona Beach. Yeah, looking very, very nice this morning. Yesterday, we got awful close to records. We got awful close to an all-time record uh, for the month of February. 90s, the hottest we've ever been in the month. We made it into the upper 80s yesterday. We're again today going to make it into the upper 80s. So here's a look at our 12-hour forecast. Upper 70s, 11 o'clock, mid-80s by 1 p.m. and 88 degrees. Our high temperature at 3 o'clock. Bright, beautiful sunshine. We're kind of stuck in this trend. It's not a bad one, but we're stuck in this trend of warmer than average temperatures. We find, on average, temperatures running in the mid-70s. Now, of course, there's days above and days below, but we are way above that. Look at this weekend's forecast. Upper 80s, bright sunshine, little sprinkle or two on Tuesday. Temperatures dropping off into the mid-range of the 80s. Uh, and then getting back to about 87 by Thursday. So even with a little frontal passage or a little turn of the winds here by early next week, we're not doing much. Morning temperatures also get a little bit of a reset from the mid-60s on Tuesday back into the lower 60s on Wednesday, okay? All right, we're going to talk a little more about our local forecast later on, but what I do want to do is I want to uh, invite in our guest today. Uh, today is Friday, and of course, during the quieter months of the year, we like to try and uh, bring some guests in, and today is one that I've, I've been trying to get him in for a very long time. Uh, this is Tony Cristaldi, everybody. He's a meteorologist over at the National Weather Service office in Melbourne. Tony and I chat quite a bit. Um, and, and, and Tony, I've, I'm trying to think. I've, I mean, I've been a, at least in your presence for more than 20 years. I've been, I've come around and bothered, you know, back when I was a, a weather producer at, uh, Channel 9 here in town. Um, so at least, you know, there, we go back loosely for, for quite some time. Um, but the reason that we got Tony on today particularly was because 
Back in 1998, 25 years ago, Tony Cristaldi was one of the main meteorologists on the floor that day issuing all of those tornado warnings. So, uh, Tony, I definitely want to chat with you. But first, Tony, uh, good morning to you, sir. T- tell everybody a little bit about you. Oh, gosh. Uh, good morning, uh, Eric. It's always a pleasure uh, being here. I've been at the National Weather Service uh, for 31 years, uh, 29 in Melbourne. Uh, got down here in 1994. Uh, I'm originally from upstate New York. Uh, lived up there in 30, uh, for about 30 years. My first duty station was Albany, New York. And like I said, I transferred down here in 1994, and I've been here ever since. Wow, that's that's a good. I mean, that's 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 a good run in the, in the government world, right? It's it's getting we're getting a little long in the tooth, but the. We still got a few years left in me, I think. Hey, you, you, and, and even beyond retirement, you, you, you will have plenty left in, in the tank there. Um, so tell everybody that may not be aware, you know, we're both in the weather world, but we have very different roles. Uh, tell everybody what the role is of a meteorologist at the National Weather Service. Well, uh, Eric, we're responsible for issuing uh, uh, warnings to protect life and property. We issue forecasts for 10 counties in East Central Florida. Um, there are six National Weather Service offices in the state, uh, one in Tallahassee, one in Jacksonville, and then in Central Florida, you have Tampa and he, over here in Melbourne. And then you have Miami, which handles South Florida, and then the Key West office, which uh, exclusively handles the Florida Keys. Uh, we issue your seven-day forecast. We issue uh, coastal waters forecasts uh, out to 60 miles. We issue boating and beach forecasts. We issue fire weather forecasts, which is getting to be more and more important here as we get in this hot and dry, yep. excuse me, stretch of weather. Um, we shoot uh, terminal forecast. We have, uh, the, uh, I believe, the second most uh, number of terminal forecasts, uh, 10 uh, of any uh, National Weather Service office in oh, the wow. U.S., of which is like, a, I think, over 130. So, uh, But our primary, the mission of the National Weather Service is issuance of, of warnings and forecasts for protection of life and property. And that certainly comes into play during more severe events, um, such as hurricanes, tropical storms, tornadoes, derechos, any number of, of different phenomenon that, that occur. Um, so your role in the in the scheme of how the public digests information is um, uh, you are the one that issues the tornado warning. And when that happens, us TV types jump on the air and say, the National Weather Service has issued this tornado warning. Right. I mean, we consider you guys, uh, everyone in the Orlando and West Palm Beach media for our southern counties, our partners, our voice, so to speak. So it's a very important uh, cooperative partnership that we have with the media. And and I would agree. I, I, I'm I'm grateful... First off, for for our friendship, Tony, but 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 for the partnership that that your office um, and 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 you know in Tampa and Jacksonville uh, works with us on because it's it really it it really is a partnership. Um, everybody on 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 you know on all television platforms, at least in the Orlando market, all of the TV meteorologists are meteorologists. So we'll all work on our own forecasts. And we may have you know different perspectives of things because of different education backgrounds. But when it comes to critical weather, certainly it's the National Weather Service office issuing a tornado warning. And there'll be times where I'll say like, oh, this cell looks suspect. And I'll pop in, you know, to, we have like a little background chat, soon to be Slack, which will be great, uh, where we can chat and kind of keep the back channels open um, among media types and among the National Weather Service and, and refer to different cells. And hey, are you guys, what are you guys seeing on this? You know, um, and all that fun stuff. So I, I think it's a really nice 
fluid partnership between TV media and and the National Weather Service. Absolutely, and you know, some people like to, to phrase it as, as uh, portrayed as some sort of competition, and it's really not. It's really not, and and there are things we do, um, there are things we can't do uh, that 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 you do as uh, like uh, when you go with wall to wall coverage yeah. and you're giving minute by minute updates. We just don't have that uh, capacity to do that, uh, doing what we do. And it's and 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 to 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 piggyback on that, you know, we've got this like offline chat, and 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 you're so right, you know. Um, we're feeding information not just from WESH to the National Weather Service, but the other TV stations, newspapers, etc., can see this information as well. And and it's not one of those things that we hide it from everybody because we are in the business of trying to keep people safe. Um, I always joke, right? Like at least in the TV world, Tony, I feel like our salespeople let they handle all that competition stuff. You know, let right. them sell it. But for us, we're in the business of actually keeping people safe, um, and 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 that is a direct partnership with your, you know, with with the folks that you work with, and with all of the media types here as well. So yeah, it's, it's a two way uh, exchange of information. We get a lot of reports uh, directly from the public, but we also uh, probably more heavily rely on media reports uh, of severe weather and, and damage and. and things like that, flooding, those type of things. Yeah. So you were talking this morning, and and by the way, Tony, how long have you been awake? When when did your shift start? Oh, my shift started at 10 o'clock last night. I'm usually the midnight guy, so it's, it's I usually work nine-hour shifts between 10 at night and uh, 7 in the morning. So. so Tony has hung out just to hang with us on Coffee Talk. So everybody, I think we need to thank you, Tony, for for, for well, high five. sticking around. Appreciate it. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I owe you a cup this. of coffee, sir. Do what? Oh, I enjoy this. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. All right. So um, talk a little bit about, let, let's go back and and talk about um, 1998 because we, we've just had the 25th anniversary of the 1998 tornadoes. Um, so talk about what your role was in that event. Well, um, the two, um, there are two people actually left in the office uh, who, uh, from that time period. And it's the two that were actually, who were the primary uh, warning and the radar meteorologist. There's myself. Uh, I was a, a general forecaster back then. I'm a senior forecaster now. And then there's Dave Sharp, who's uh, one office away uh, right now. He's uh, He was the science and operations officer uh, back in 1998. And now he's the meteorologist in charge. Uh, I believe he's been, uh, I think, for the last five years. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, we were the guys who were... Uh, monitoring the radar, uh, issuing the warnings, uh, basically doing what we could to get that information out. And it was just such a tremendous amount of information uh, that we that we sent out last night or that that uh, that night. And when, I, when we look back on it, 25 years in the rearview mirror, it given the technology yeah. of the time, it I just scratched my head in amazement that we were able to issue so so many products, uh, and and <laughs> keep people safe. Uh, you know, uh, there, you know, one of the things we regret uh, the fact that forty two people lost their lives. Sure, but we feel that you know there would have been a, a heck of a lot more had it not been all, uh, for the information we provided. One hundred. I mean, one final lead time for all those tornadoes. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, back then the technology for people. Uh, to receive warnings, especially at night, just wasn't there. There was, no, you know, they had TV, uh, TV 
radio and no weather radio. You didn't have like wireless alerts. You didn't really have the, the internet was kind of in its fledgling days. Right. People didn't have smartphones. So, I mean, the technology between 25 years ago today and all aspects of that, of that event is, is the change has been tremendous. 100%. So uh, I, I'm just kind of, I've been cycling through uh, and, and just kind of looking around and like, this is, you know, this is an example of one of the tornadoes that was touching down over Kissimmee, looking at that uh, radar velocity. And I'll bring it full screen here. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable to see this kind of radar imagery. Certainly, you know, we see this plenty, but, but in this case, in, in this case in particular, you know, it, it was happening and it was happening in a, in a, time frame where people were sleeping. And it, as you mentioned, it was happening in a situation where people didn't necessarily have the situational awareness they do today. That's the only picture you had mentioned um, that we know of from the 98 tornadoes and, and you know, who's, who's responding, but you, you know, there's your name at the bottom of this tornado on the ground in winter garden. You were typing this and, and it, tell me what it was like knowing because you'd been here for a little while at least, but knowing that there's a, a true tornado outbreak playing out, how did that feel for you? Well, you know, the three, three things uh, from a, a meteorological perspective uh, stick out about that night. One was the signatures, the hook echoes, the storm relative velocity couplets, the inbounds and the outbounds, the basically the strength of the circulation. Yeah. That left no doubt that there were tornadoes. Uh, the second thing is the forward speed of these cells. Um, they were between moving. This is not the wind speed of the tornadoes. This is just the motion of the cells was generally toward the east, northeast at between 50 and 65 miles per hour. Right. That's incredible. Uh, just an incredible uh, low level wind jet uh, that was occurring that night. And then the third uh, was the amount of lightning these cells uh, were producing. We were fortunate enough in our partnership with the 45th Weather Squadron up at the Kennedy Space Center, NASA. Uh, to have two separate workstations and we were the only weather service office at the time in the united states that had access in 1998 to three-dimensional lightning data oh wow so not only just the cloud to ground what they call the nldn national lightning detection network but we what we called eldar which is lightning detection and ra ranging and mm -hmm. it's basically a three-dimensional box that shows lightning aloft as well as the surface mm -hmm. and we, you could see as these uh, uh, supercells, these tornadoes, they cycled up and down. The lightning would just spike through the roof. Yeah. And and that picture you showed uh, of the uh, it was taken from Windermere down toward Disney, looking north toward the Winter Garden tornado. Uh, the person took that with a, a video camera. It's a screen capture from. Uh, oh, VHS. oh, the video. Yeah. Let me let me bring that back up. And he he remarked he had never seen lightning like that. It was continuous lightning. And that's why the only that's the only reason you can see the tornado is because it's backlit, backlit by lightning. So these cells were just just I mean off the charts as far as forward speed, the strength of the rotation, and the amount of lightning they were, produ they were yeah. producing. Yeah. I mean at the time, uh, we were so Dave and I were so focused on the process of analyzing the storms, issuing all these products. Um, the enormity of the situation really didn't hit us until the event was over. Sure. Um, yeah, remember these cells, for, for, for those, uh, if you want to put that track map uh, back up. Oh, for yeah. For all those tornado, uh, uh, those tracks, there were cells in between those tracks that, were, that had very strong circulations too that we issued tornado warnings for that didn't produce tornadoes. But they more than likely 
produce very strong rotating wall clouds. Right. And even as you go farther south, uh, we issued tornado one. The event really didn't get over with until the, the, the last few cells moved offshore uh, southern Brevard County, down here toward Melbourne. Mm-hmm. But that gave us a ch- kind of a chance, and I think by then it was probably, I want to say like 6, 6 o'clock in the morning. We started seeing the videos yeah. come from uh, Ponderosa RV Park, from right. Sanford, from Winter Garden. And that's when the enormity of it, I think it just hit Dave and I and everyone else in the office. Uh, it just hit us like a ton of bricks. Right. That, wow, this is this is the stuff that you saw on TV as a, as a, a student meteorologist in the Midwest that uh, you just, you, your jaw virtually drops. It's, it's, it was just very, very sobering, yeah. saddening um, that you, you know, we issued the, all these warnings and still, because the technology just wasn't there and because they occurred at night right. that uh, 42 people lost their lives. Now, in, in thinking back to 1998, I mean, and for, for everybody's sidebar, uh, we have a weather serve. Uh, we have a, a Doppler radar at Wesh, um, but the National Weather Service has a much more powerful, much larger, uh, robust, government-funded <laughs> Doppler radar uh, that runs on S band as opposed to C band. And there's there's certainly some advantages to that. Um, I'm trying to think. I know that Melbourne was was early, early, like the second or third 88D that was installed, right? We were the third. Um uh, third radar that was installed, the second operational Got radar it. that was installed, and the first to be commissioned. The first radar that went up was at Norman, was the sure. what they called the operational support facility, where they did all the testing. Second radar went went up in Sterling, uh, which is basically right outside of Washington yep, D.C. Yep, yep. near NOAA headquarters, and we were the third. And is is it, that because we, of NASA? Yes, it, it, I think it, the proximity to NASA and our partnership with them uh, allowed us to get a radar. Uh, uh, you know the third third radar uh, delivered in the first commission. I mean, it's, it's basically in a matter of importance, and and the DC radar obviously, you know, being closely located near Purse strings. Uh, NOAA, head, NOAA headquarters. Yeah. So so for everybody's benefit, so there's our live radar sweep. We have a live data stream from the national. There's there's the radar that's literally outside of, of Tony's window right now. Um, and, and, and technology has changed so much, you know, like our radar is at WESH. So I get every second, you know, our radar turns six degrees a second. I get new data. The National Weather Service, it, the way it used to be is they'd, they'd do a volume scan, package up data and send it out. And then, you know, we would receive it. And now we get data essentially live as well particularly depending on what mode, you know, your, you know, what uh, VCP mode you're scanning on. Um, would you say that this was the first tornado outbreak Central Florida saw in using a WSR-88D, the Doppler radar? Um, trying to think. There were several severe weather events. There were some pretty significant hailstorms. 93. Uh, in 1992 and 1993. Yeah. There was one that produced, a, they were both around UCF and, and Orlando. Yep. And I remember one of them produced such a large amount of hail, and the other one produced very, very large hail. And yeah. they were extremely damaging uh, to, to greenhouses and properties and, and, and so forth. As far as uh, tornado outbreaks, which are, which are fairly uncommon outside of tropical cyclones, yeah. Yeah, I would probably say the first one may have been uh, the tornadoes associated with Aaron in 1995. Yep, yep. Uh, 
which were tropical cyclone, which are a little bit different. They're very transient, very fast moving. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you got to remember, too, that whole um, winter, that whole dry season uh, was very strong El Nino, yeah. strongest on record. That previous November 1997 was the New Smyrna Beach F3. Oh, my gosh. I forgot all about that. Yeah, and, and there were several events leading up to that um, in December and January. In fact, the afternoon before the outbreak, there was a, a tornado, that a water spout that moved on shore in, in the Atlantic and damaged, I think, a Winn-Dixie or a supermarket there. And five days earlier, another water spout moved on shore. Uh, and these weren't like like skinny water spots. These were supercells over water. Yeah. One block away, it moved on shore in, in the Atlantic. So those were, and there were several events, uh, uh, watches and warnings uh, in, tor- in bona fide tornadoes that occurred uh, in over toward Orlando and Kissimmee. Yeah. So I mean, it was it's hard to discern. There were so many events, but the conditions were the setup was just so favorable during that that strong El Nino, that uh, you know it, there were several several events leading up right. to what what was the culmination. Uh, of that of that El Nino season because if you recall <laughs> right after that it was like someone turned out the spigot and yep. suddenly it was fire season yep. no rain no storms and and uh, you know uh, most of East Central Florida had had problems with wildfires so, and and Flagler County was evacuated <laughs> there you go which I'm I'm going to be doing uh, a story on that this summer because it's also the 25th anniversary of that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, really interesting. I had I had just in in doing research for my 1998 tornado story, I had read that there was a 140 knot streak over top of us for this mm-hmm. event. That's yeah. wicked. Well, that's I mean strong El Ninos. Uh, in particular, that's the big thing they do. It kind of sets off an atmospheric chain yeah. where you get warming, anomalous warming over the equatorial Pacific. What does that do? Well, that fuels a lot of thunderstorm activity. And off of that thunderstorm activity, because high altitude winds that blow off and you get a very strong subtropical jet stream uh, that moves across uh, usually uh, Southern California, across the southern tier of the U.S., and then across uh, uh, Florida. Um, one of the things that does is, is beneath jet streams, you get these storm systems, these low pressure areas that occur with relative frequency, like every four to five days and the storm track, you'll see these things coming from the Pacific and they will just blow right across the Southern tier of the U S which is what happened in in 1998. The flip side to that El Nino is when it lingers into the summer and the fall, that wind shear, that strong jet in the low latitudes helps to knock down uh, tropical waves. And, and you get less uh, less in the way of uh, a much le- less active hurricane season. And it'll be interesting to see because we're transitioning from a triple dip La Nina exactly. to we're, an El Nino. Yeah, we're in this, what we call this, we're headed toward what's called the spring predictability barrier where the models don't do particularly well. But from what we can see in all the data, El, uh, La Nina is really on its last legs. Yeah. There's the, 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 the cool pool of water near the surface is, is rapidly shrinking, rapidly diminishing. And the subsurface warm pool is, is getting larger and it's getting more intense. Yeah. Which all you need is some, some atmospheric forcing mechanism, uh, to bring that warmer water up to the surface and we'll, we'll switch over. That'll kind of flip the switch. And, uh, it's the odds are, are, are highly in favor of, of eventually it's, I think it's just a matter of 
how fast this occurs. Right, when, yeah. Summer the, or, the... or fall. Uh, I mean, there is a possibility that it doesn't. We've had these, like, what I call pump fakes where, where the warm pool just dissipates. You don't get that mechanism to, to push and upwell that water. Yeah. Could happen. But the, pro- the odds, the odds of, a, of a quadruple dip La Nina are pretty low. I mean, I, I was looking through the Climo and I only found, and maybe you've got a better data source, I only found Climo data for Enzo going back to like the 1950s. And a quadruple dip is not, it's just not like a thing. It's not, it's not in the records. It's yeah. not in the records. And it, it's interesting because um, when you look at the amplitude of, of warm El Nino events versus uh, cool La Ninas, um, El Nino events tend to have more amplitude and are shorter in duration. Right. They tend to peak higher, um, but don't last as long. La Nina doesn't have as much amplitude. The the waters the waters don't get quite as cold. Right. But they tend to last longer. Yeah. And this is the case where we had a triple dip where where you had a, a moderate La Nina, uh, then it kind of weakened back to to kind of cool neutral to to low end. Yeah. And then it cooled back down again. So uh, that happened twice. You know, triple dip. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very interesting. And we'll just have to see. Of course, I didn't dial up that the Enzo prediction graphic while while we were talking, and that's that's just my bad. I want to open it up to questions uh, from anybody that that wants to chat with Tony Cristaldi, uh, meteorologist over at the National Weather Service office in Melbourne. Um, it, it's it's a very different side of meteorology, but but I you know I'm I'm so grateful for the partnership that we have um, because it's 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 vital. I, as you mentioned, it's vital to us doing our job of getting the message out, and it's vital to you to get information in. And and anytime that there's storm reports and things, you know, it's um, it we take a very responsible position on making sure to send information your way. Sidebar can Slack can do images, right? So like if we see something on our radar, we could just throw a screen grab on Slack. It should be able to do that. We're we're looking forward to using that. The internal keep the back channels open National Weather Service weather community chat. It'll be nice. That'll be nice when there's a cell that's in kind of a no man's land between you know Nexrad sites or you know just right. north you know at, to the point where the terminal radar in, in Orlando doesn't see things great. Um, right. Yeah, I think that'll be nice, especially when like we could chime in and Channel Nine could chime in and everybody could chime in and throw in their radar signatures. Yeah, our ability to to interact minute by minute with the Orlando media. Uh, with Wesh and, and WFTV and the other stations, that's where we do the the frequent updates. We don't, we just don't have the ability to interact with the public directly uh, as quickly as right. as you guys do. Right. Okay. So Eric's asking a question, and I know that you and I have chatted a little bit, but Eric's asking, what are your thoughts of the LRC, the the recurring cycle, long range stuff that you and I have chatted about? I haven't I haven't looked at it very closely um, beyond what I've I've seen you. Uh, uh, some of your presentations. Yeah. Um, I'm not really a big climatology, but you know, uh, there are, there are, um, Oh, what's the word when you analogs? Yes. Analogs yeah. are a very powerful forecast tool. And I, and I believe LRC, if, if I'm not mistaken, uses kind of an analog and then a, a recurrence of these type of analogs. It's like a teleconnection very, kind of idea. It's yeah. A, it's a very powerful predictive tool as far as specifics. Um, I think you can narrow down the windows a little bit, but we're not, you know, we're never going to be Agreed. in my lifetime at the, at the point where a long range forecast will, you know, you'll be able to call the weather service and say, Hey, I'm getting, we're having an outdoor, uh, a picnic or barbecue on April 6th. Yep. What, what's the weather going to be like? Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you can, you can give people climatology and tell them, 
you know, well, usually it's one of the drier months and it's usually uh, kind of breezy. Uh, and the long range forecast calls for over that month above normal temperatures. Yeah, yeah. Or, below, you know, whatever. But you can't really get too specific, yep. especially as you go farther out in time. 100%. 100%. I think, I think the power of it is getting an idea, right? Like I always say that it's like you're driving in a foggy road and you see there's, you know, you see there's headlights. But that's, you know, you can't say, oh, that's a Honda Accord heading at 150. You you get an idea, but that's yeah. where that ends. And you have to know well, your limitation. Well, they, there's an old weather saying, the trend is your friend. And I think that's that's one of the things where, where you identify analogs and trends. Yeah. And you can kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the trend. You just brought me back to Justin Mosley. He would always say that from his time at, at the National yeah. Weather Service office there. The trend is your friend. Uh, Nikki's asking, thoughts on radar gap holes like, say, Northern Marion County. Is it worth trying to fix? And this is this is not, you know, don't ever, I'm, there is zero attempt at a gotcha question. I no, don't no, ever no, want to get you in trouble, that. Tony. Those are, those are legitimate questions. Um, we're, <laughs> you know, we're at the mercy of, as, as an agency, the funding we get. And we really don't have too much of a say. Yeah. Um, Basically, I think the best thing is to, you know, for things like that is to contact uh, your local congressman or congressperson, I should say, um, on a state, state or better yet, federal level and bring that to their attention uh, so that, you know, maybe they'll, they'll fund another study. I mean, there, there are well-known gaps throughout the United States, and it's just a matter of we don't have infinite funding to put a weather radar yeah. every single place. They started off, um, you know, with where, you know, what the what the financial situation, what the budget would allow, and then they noticed some gaps, and they they filled in some of those gaps. They have some radars that, uh, you know, they have some terminal Doppler weather radars at airports, but there's, you know, there's there's more that could be done. I think, um, as far as filling some of those gaps, um, I I would say just let let your congressperson know yeah. that you really think think that's that's uh, something that need, needs to be done. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not going to blow smoke uh, in front of anyone's eyes and say and say that's not a problem because it is. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that truth be told, for what it's worth, I think that we are fairly well covered here when comparing to other parts of the country. I mean, there's parts there, of the country are, that are there live. are areas and and heavily populated areas that that have more significant um, uh, radar gap, yeah, uh, beam height issues. We do, you know, when, when you look, it's just a limitation of radars. As the beam goes out, it goes up. Yeah. Um, so the more radars you put in, in, in these intervals, in these gaps, the better off you'll be. So. Mary's asking, Tony, how often are the radars capabilities updated? That's a good, that's a good nerd question for you. Oh, gosh. Um, we do software builds. Uh, gosh, I want to say... Probably it's, it's probably every few months uh, increases the pro- process. You know, we have to increase the hardware. The, uh, the there's hardware and software upgrades where they mm-hmm. increase the processing power uh, to to match up with the new products that, that get introduced. Like for example, it was a significant upgrade for dual pole. Yeah. For dual polarity was probably the the biggest uh, upgrade. And then we had the what was called the uh, SLEP, which was basically kind of a maintenance upgrade where they replaced uh, most most of the pedestals. Because you know the radars here, uh, we're we're talking about you know er, uh, was it 1991 I think it was yeah. so we're you know upwards of 30 years and there's a lot of wear and tear that goes this radar is even when the this past week 
the rate, we go into a mode where it doesn't spin around as much and doesn't take as many uh, vertical tilts, but it still spins around and around 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And one thing that's that that uh, I don't think a lot of people realize, that's the National Weather Service radar, okay? So you see the scan, and when we display the scan, it is the lowest tilt at 0.5. Um, but the Weather Service radar does something that our WESH radar does not, okay? Now, our, our WESH radar has the capability to, but in TV, we don't we don't need that data, so it's different. For, for us, we just sit at 0.5 five or 0.3 even sometimes and we just scan and so the radar the radar doesn't do this very much unless there's a bad uh, you know bad weather where we want to do a height scan or something national weather service radar you have to do a volumetric scan can you explain a little of that to, to everybody out there well you, you it's basically uh, you know it's analogous to a, cat, a ct scan uh you have to get a three-dimensional picture uh of, of the atmosphere and you have to find, you have to see where your your high intensity echoes are. You have to see where your rotation is, how deep it is, how strong it is. And the only way you can do that is is through multiple scans. Um, our radar starts at, at half a degree and it goes all the way up to nine, uh, almost twenty degrees. Um, I'll cycle and, through. Not that there's much there, you know, it's ground clutter, but at least I can. I'll cycle through just so that everybody can kind of see. So this is 0.5, and watch how as I click up, you're just going to see the radar looking different. Oh, if I have to click it, there we are. See how it just disappears because there's nothing going on up there. Right, and you'll notice as you go higher up, the 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 coverage, the aerial coverage will shrink yeah. because the radar beam is so high up, <laughs> it it doesn't go out that far. Right. So what what we do um, in situations where there's severe weather is most of the time we'll use the National Weather Service radar to to look at things with height, and we'll leave our radar on the surface just to try and get you know as much ground truth as so to speak as, as is possible and, and, and it's important to say too that here our office we have access to all the other national weather service offices in the u.s we can pull up tampa we can pull up jacksonville miami yeah. and we also have access to the terminal doppler radars uh at uh, orlando and we, we actually can any one of the any of them in the united states but primarily we look at the ones uh in the one in orlando and for, since we have 10 counties that go, go all the way down to Lake Okeechobee, we look at the, the terminal Doppler radar at West Palm Beach pretty frequently, too. Yeah. And 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 side note, and, and, and Tony and I have talked about this, one thing that I want to try and do is get um, at least some sort of data feed of the WESH radar. Not that it's, you know, it's it's just another tool that, that, that you guys could have because it's a different location and, and, and anything to help in that decision-making process on your team is is, is a big deal for, for us. So... I mean, we want to help out. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. The more, the better. It's it's like it speaks to the the fact that that there are radar gaps, uh, yeah. coverage gaps in the U.S. The more radars you have, the better off you'll be. But these radars, you know, they cost money to build and they cost a lot of money to maintain. It's just a, a matter. Of, it's a limitation. If we had infinite resources, we could put radars everywhere. Right. But uh, you know, the the reality of the situation is we don't, and we have we have to work with the constraints of of our agency budget. Yeah. Okay. So Annette's asking on Radar Scope, the app, do I have access to the National Weather Service radar, or is that exclusive for meteorologists? You know the answer to that. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, you you can access whatever our data. Our data goes out to vendors. Uh, we have you know various uh, agencies. Our radar goes out. To, we have direct lines to the 45th Weather Squadron. We have a uh, direct. Uh, 
lines that go to the FAA. Um, it was also, what is it, the word line that goes out to, uh, oh gosh, see, this is what you get for working 10 hours. That's uh, And the, you're tired. The, company, uh, the tech company across uh, the, the developed the, like Raytheon. Um, no, that's yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, the, they do testing on, on, on there's, a, there's a direct line that goes to them as well. Yeah. So, yeah, the vendors turn around and, and you can grab that, you know, that information. Um, it also is uploaded to a central database. Right. Uh, instantaneously that I think I think that's what the weather scope grabs it off. Yeah. Of, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think so. And we're yeah. like we're we're our vendor pays to be able to get the full sales data so that when you guys get into rapid, you know. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that goes back to another thing about working that event that, that you're limited. You know, we worked with a clunky, what was called a principal user processor, which is this big monstrosity of a workstation. Yeah. And you were, we were limited to five minute or six minute scans at, at best. Yeah, that's true. And, and not only has the since then the, the temporal resolution, you know, with sales cuts that you mentioned, uh, we can get we can get two minute, you know, two minute scans now. Right. But the actual resolution of the radar, one hundred percent, we have what's called super resolution reflectivity, yeah. which is and velocity, which is so much better, uh, less pixelated than the, than the uh, coarser resolution data that we had to had to look at. Uh, it, it's from I'm, I'm I'm zooming into the raw data just just for nerdiness. This is you know this is his radar here, and so you know what he's referring to is is the size of those pixels basically. Exactly. This exactly. is ground clutter. It's just like your TV, your resolu- your TV resolution. The smaller the you know the greater the resolution, the greater number of pixels. The smaller each pixel, the better the picture. Yeah. The better the radar picture. You know, just like your TV picture. As and I'm I'm going over here and and I'll I'll show you one thing that's nice. I can I can also say that that in the upgrades since '98, like the Wesh radar has a ridiculously high resolution as well. Like it has moved forward. But one thing that's interesting, also. Um, my radar is is for me to use. When Tony's on shift, we, no matter who's operating it at the television station, we can do whatever the heck we want. If we say that there's a tornado in, say, Ocala, we can drop it as low as we want, and we can seriously just sit there and swipe back and forth in a sector scan. You cannot, though. I- explain how and why that is such a, a, a different world. Well, it's it's interesting you mention that because the old generation radars before Doppler, the days of Doppler, you could do just that. The old seventy fours and the fifty sevens. Yeah. Those you could you you would frequently they had a, they had a technique it was called the wrist technique where you'd stop the radar, scan back and forth, go up, scan back and forth, go up. Well, it does it automatically now, and it's just the, there's so much data um, and so much processing that goes on that you just can't stop the radar. Yeah. It would just mess up all the, their, all the, what we call the derived products. Right. Uh, like echo tops, uh, the velocity products. You could, you can't just stop it and say, Oh, well, I'm going to start it again because all the, all that data would just reset to zero and you wouldn't get any of these products. And there's all so these people that depend on all that data. It's a trade off in that sense, but it, it's, it's, it's a net plus without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. So, so the, 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 new way it used to be that you'd have to do your full volume scan before you got back down to the surface whereas now you've got the the ability to get into a situation where you could go 0. 0.5 1.5 0. 0.5 2.5 so you're constantly getting those updates right and and with dual pole we do that we do that routinely for the uh velocity scans to get the uh, uh to get the uh, dual pole data yeah and and Dual pole data is just—it's just a matter of it lets you see more about 
what type of, of uh, target yeah. uh, is showing up on radar. You can, you can, it gives you products that help you discern uh, between uh, rainfall, between hail, uh, up north, you know, you'd look at you'd look at snow, but here we um, also smoke, right? And also biological targets like birds and, and insects. So, and all right, so pole, let's yeah, let me and, pull and, that up just for fun. Tornadoes, one of the dual pole products that you look at is 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 uh, correlation coefficient. There it is, and the uh, uh, differential reflectivity that allows you to actually see tornadic debris, what we call debris balls. Yep, yep, and we we use that. We use that. This is the product that we use, and and during severe weather, it's got a cheeky name. The bosses wanted to call it the debris tracker, because <laughs> correlation coefficient. And and honestly, this boss is gone, so I guess we could just call it correlation coefficient. But but the old boss wanted to call it debris tracker. But like this, obviously, you're seeing these greens and these blues. That's that's if these shades on our color table show up as red, then you got the rain. But but this right. is. Correlation coefficient, all that is, is a simplified way of looking at that is how round is this target? Yeah. If it's, if it's round, round like uh, raindrops, then that's, that's pretty much what it is. The less round it is, then it's not rain. It, it'll be, you know, if it's, it's meteorological, you can get, you get into uh, where you have hail. And then if it's like smoke and ash particles, then you get really low correlation yeah. coefficients because obviously they're not round. And if, correct me if I'm wrong... But when they were developing the dual pole technology, they weren't even thinking about debris. It was mainly for like a winter precip type thing, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. And it, it's just one of the, the side benefits of, of, yeah. of this, this technology. It's, it's fascinating. And, <clears throat> and I, will, I will also say that there are times quite often when, when uh, Tony has on the side just kind of helped me, you know, if, if I'm, if there's newer, you know, like when dual pole came out, I know you sent me a bunch of resources to kind of familiarize myself because once you're out of college, it, when something new like dual pole comes up and I mean, Jesus, it's been more than a decade now, I feel like since you guys got your upgrade. Um, mm-hmm. But Melbourne was one of the first sites and it's like, there was just nothing published for a TV met who's all of a sudden going to get all this new data. And so you helped send me some information just so I could figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I thank you for that. Any other questions? Right. I'm, I'm looking at the comments now, Debbie. I, I apologize. A lot of people are saying, um, a, a lot of people are saying, thank you for all of this nerd chat. So um, it, uh, it, it, it's great. And, I, I enjoy it. You know, I could talk all day about, you know, the 98 outbreak and, and just the differences in every aspect of, of that event in 1998 versus 2023. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's from, from typing out, you know, nothing was automated. That's the big thing. Everything is automated now. Um, for example, when we did send out those warnings, we typed them out on a workstation. Now we just, we just click. We just move a mouse and click and maybe type out a few words. Everything else is automated. And we, when we hit the send button, there's no paper script like in 1998. Right. Okay, well, you got to print out the uh, print out the warning or the statement or whatever, hand it to the weather radio person, and they got they have to read it on the air. They got to press a button to tone alert. Now it's it does all, you hit send, automatic voice, automatic dissemination. Yeah. Everything is 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 automated. So when you say automated, so essentially you do what this kind of the similar thing that we do. So say there's a cell in downtown Orlando moving south. So you would just take and draw some sort of a fan, and that's pretty much how we drew. You know, and and that's another thing I, I, I forgot to mention. Back in 1998, we did not have warning by polygon. We had warning by county. county. Yeah. So when you issued a warning, it was for the entire county. Yep. And and you could 
in the text, you could say where it is, but the actual warning, instead of highlighting the small box in a county, yeah. you know, and that, that's a pretty significant thing when you're talking about, you know, Brevard County being 70 miles north to south, Polk, you know, we have some big and odd shaped yeah. counties here in central Florida. Yeah. And, and that the technology to be able to do that, to refine these warnings is super important. Okay, couple of couple of random questions. Now I'm reading the questions, so everybody ask them. Uh, everybody's asking, what's your favorite type of coffee? Probably because we all feel like I need to buy you some coffee, which I, I need to do. So, my favorite type of coffee, yeah, <laughs> right here, <laughs> Coca Cola. I, I, I don't drink coffee. This is my caffeine. Wow, you're not even a Red Bull guy, huh? Nah, not not a Red Bull guy. And this is Coke Zero, too. On the midnight shift. I love it. I love it. Um, Janet was asking, was the Kennedy Space Center affected by those tornadoes in 98? Uh, We had one tornado. If you pull the map back up, you'll see one that went through the port area. Um, Stand by. Pulling it up. And it was an interesting story. Um, Oh, that's that's another thing, too. The damage surveys. Yeah, see that? Can, uh, Can you get the... I don't know if it's on your screen or my screen. There you go. That number seven. Yep. That one was the uh, one that went through Port Canaveral. So one of, one of the things about <clears throat> tornadoes going across the Cape, and we learned this in Irma, we had, we had a time. I'm personally of the opinion, given the, the strength of the couplets and the tornado vortex signatures or mm-hmm. TVSs, that there were a lot more tornadoes than what were actually verified. But right. the problem is if you don't have any damage and you have no no trees yeah. it's just flat and scrub you don't really unless you're out there doing surveys right uh and you know dod property you really can't get on there and, and see you'll never know well and you'll i also know. wonder if you know given dual pole it's one of those situations where now the situational awareness would be higher you'd have a better idea of where do i did you have like the enrot product back then uh no See, like the, no, we didn't have that, or we didn't have. Um, I'm trying to remember when the um, mezzo. We did have mezzo tracks, I believe, and that could that, that and that would just be like a line that would it would basically take take the strongest velocities and and kind of draw a line right. based off that. We right. had that mezzo tracks. Yeah, but and and we used we used to in the old days when we did surveys. I could I could. You could do a show on on damage surveys. Yeah, but we would print out those metal track products and try and, and follow them, it and take them on the yeah and and take them on. and and keep in mind. Um, I did a large amount of uh, damage surveying, but not the uh, uh, the areas that were the hardest hit. Yeah, I mapped out the areas east, uh, the extension of the uh, Kissimmee tornado, the mm-hmm. eastern extension of that. Yeah, uh, the eastern extension of the. Uh, uh, Winter Garden tornado, um, and I did the damage survey for for Port Canaveral. Yeah, um, and those things, all those damage surveys, we didn't have today. You have a tablet, and you have GPS where you can input coordinates and connect connect the dots that right. way. We had I played connect the dots with large pieces of paper on a gazetteer that I that I Xerox, and and <laughs> went crisscrossing on all the roads. Yeah, and and putting dots on a map, and that's how. You see those eastern parts of those tracks. That's how they were. That's how they were uh, 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 composed. Wow. And one of the interesting things, and I always bring this up, is that Kissimmee tornado, the eastern part of that. Um, I went to. Uh, I don't know if you know where the uh, Tassahatchee Preserve is. Okay. Eastern Eastern Orange County. I've seen it on a map. 
I, I, the park ranger there took me through the forest and there okay. was a lot of old growth forest and you could see it was like a buzzsaw. You could see where that tornado went through there. Oh, wow. And you could see as we went further in the forest, the snapping of the trees got higher and higher until the tornado lifted it. And, and there, uh, there's an access road and it has a bunch of 50,000 watt uh, transformers and power yeah. lines. Yeah. And it lifted above that. That rotating wall cloud went above uh, a place called the RV, another RV park called Whoa. the Great Outdoors. Whoa! It's, it's south of uh, it's it's west of Titusville, off of State Road 50, extending south. Yeah. And it's one of the at at the time it was one of the largest RV communities uh, wow. in the United States. I, I forget the number. It's it's like three thousand five, one thousand, three thousand five thousand. Oh my god! It's it's huge. It's huge. And then the uh, tornado set back down right around I-95. So it lifted for, I think, a mile and a, a mile, a mile and a half. Just to save and those people. top of that. Otherwise, you would have had two Ponderosa events. And, I, and it, it, I, I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, you can read about it in the, um, I think it's, it's. I think it's mentioned in the damage survey. I'll it's just, to, you know, I'll how serendipitous is that? I mean, it, it, for as bad as it was, that could have easily... Doubled. Yeah, doubled. Yeah, exactly. Wow that that hits that hits a little that hits a little. Yeah, and and I don't know if people who lived there at the time just realized how close and how lucky they they got at the time. To I, mean, hear, I, I, I to to hear that you could see it going up the trees that 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 alone is wild. But to imagine that it could have hit another RV park um, is a lot. Yeah, it's Beverly's it's, it's very sobering. Very sobering. Beverly's asking. Are there any storm chasers? Okay, with all the new technology, are there still storm chasers? And if so, does the National Weather Service work with them, kind of like the eyes on the ground? We do. And and that's another point, another difference back then. Um, storm chasing was, you know, uh, really in its, in its infancy. And not as many people were doing it. And people didn't have the equipment they have today. And they didn't, they, they, you know, they didn't have in-your-car in radar. Right. Or in, you know, yeah. Uh, and they didn't have uh, the ability to send... Um, you know, there were no smartphones. You couldn't instantaneously upload stuff. Internet, 1998 internet. I mean, it was rough. It's just, yeah, just the whole communication, the flow of communication. Um, basically, spotters would, or uh, uh, chasers or spotters would have to call us. And on a, on a uh, you know, on a kind of antiquated, I think we, we, we did have, you know, like 98. Was that, we were still Nokia or were we in the Motorola? The razor phase or something like that but i i, I just noticed on your phones. you didn't and you didn't have you know the data the amount of data you could upload or, or the avenue where you yeah. could take pictures and, and send them or video clips and, and upload them to twitter instantaneously or send it you know facebook you didn't have that back then yeah well and a lot of your posts on the on the storm reports are talking about ham radio operators reporting tornado on the ground there's, there's another there's another another one of the vitally important voice uh for, for the national weather service yeah, uh, ham radio operators in, in real time. So uh, there, there's a lot of people that are asking a lot of questions. And I'm going to get a couple more in, but but they're all also asking me to have you back for more because you are <laughs> truly a wealth of information. So nice. just know I'm going nice. to come calling again. All um, right. Okay. So Brian's asked, and it's he's asked a couple of times, and I apologize to you, Brian. When the weather satellites are launched from the Kennedy Space Center, who gets the data first? NASA, local TV stations, or the National Weather Service? That's part one. And part two is how's the data collected and processed to go on the air for TV? So I can handle the 
the data processed is just once it hits the government servers, our vendor then turns around and figures out how to get it. But who gets the data from the weather satellites first? It would be you guys, right? Well, it's it, first it's beamed down to a, what's called a, a receiving station. It's, it's a satellite dish and it receives that data. And then that, from there it goes to a central, a central processing center. I believe it's, uh, I don't know if it's Reston, Virginia. It's somewhere up, up north, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and from there it gets distributed at, or distributed. It gets distributed, um, I think simul- it's, it's pretty much simultaneously. It gets distributed to vendors and weather offices. Yeah. Um, I think the throughput, you know, the, the wideband capacity is, is larger, obviously, for, for the line offices, yeah. the weather service office, uh, the, the forecast centers like the Weather Prediction Center, National Hurricane Center. Uh, they're kind of prioritized as far as how much bandwidth they get sure. to, to get all that data. And it's and th- there's there's another thing, technology, satellite data. What we had back then, we had visible imagery, four kilometer resolution, water vapor imagery, eight kilometer resolution, oh, wow. IR, IR, four kilometer resolution, and two channels of it. Now we have like 15 channels. Yeah. We have half kilometer, uh, and, and it was every 15 minutes, the satellite data was, 15 minutes. Now we get it routinely every five minutes and and during weather severe weather events we do what's called a, a it used to be called rapid scan and now it's called the mds a mesoscale domain sector and it's every and you can get two of them for each satellite goes yeah. east and goes west yeah so theoretically during a hurricane you could have both mesoscale domain sectors yeah. pointed over the same spot and get no oh we lost him ah the call dropped. What he was going to say is theoretically during a hurricane situation, you could get a two channel mesoscale satellite. And, and we do routinely use that. Um, wow. Ah, the call dropped. Well, listen, um, Tony needs to go home anyway. He's been awake for a hundred hours. Um, I cannot thank Tony Cristaldi enough for coming and hanging out for Coffee Talk. I will, folks, I will get him back on here, I promise. He's such a wealth of information, and during severe weather, um, I, I so often have I bounced things off of him. He's he's a good, good guy. He's a good, good guy. I, I'm so grateful for him to chat with us. So, uh, at any rate, we will have Tony back on. Sorry we couldn't formally thank him for it. Um, but yeah, listen, people, that is that is just one of the meteorologists over at the National Weather Service that we work with. It's the part of the weather field you just don't see, but it is such a vital part. And, uh, and, and, and we are just so grateful, just so grateful for not just him, but for all of the National Weather Service meteorologists that we work with. So anyway, that's, that's that for the, for the Coffee Talk drive through today. Thank you so much for hanging out and uh, chatting. And uh, listen, you just never know. You just never know what else we can learn. I, I certainly learned some things. It's going to take me a minute to, uh, to kind of wrap my head around, to kind of wrap my head around, um, kind of wrap my head around the the idea that there could have been an, another RV park that that was impacted that that part is that part's going to resonate for a minute because the 98 tornadoes were one of those situations where I I I had you got you got you got zapped hold on let me I'll fix it I'll fix it I'll get yeah, give me a sec. I'll fix it. 
I'm the director and the I'm I'm the director and the the nerd. Oh there, my he gosh, is. there we go. Okay, I'm live again. All right, he's back. Well, yeah, we want to let you go anyway. Um, oh, we, oh, what, what were we talking about? We were talking about the 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 one minute updates on the new goes. 16, oh yeah, 17. and you can get thirty second updates if you have both months of scale domain sectors pointed at the thirty sec because they're alternating. Yes. I didn't know that. You can get that. Yeah, they do that for like only special occasions, like real intense, you know, very intense hurricanes or, or uh, significant severe weather outbreaks, yeah. things like that is when they do that. But most of the time they prioritize it, um, you know, basically for, for SPC and National Hurricane Center and then the and then the uh, forecast office. But you guys do have the opportunity to um, to put in a request if there's a major event. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. We do that. But I mean, one minute imagery, it's like, it's, you know, I said, uh, back, I had the, the original white paper, um, and it's from 2000. Yeah. Of, it's, it's called the requirements document for okay. the next generation of goes. And I saw that, you know, I read this and I highlighted all the cool things. I was like, they'll never be able to do this. And they did, they did all that and more. I wow. mean, it, it's amazing. Uh, the nighttime infrared imagery. Yes. The ability to see hot spots in higher resolution, you know, two kilometer or, or yeah, it's two kilometer resolution. Um, uh, the, the goes uh, all these derived products you can get the, the nighttime RGB for yep. fog and stratus, yep. uh, the goes fire temperature, the goes land surface temperature. Yeah. All this, it goes back to talking about the satellite data and the receiving station. Yeah. Yeah. So much more, pro, uh, data to process. You, you know, we're talking about instead of, you know, four, four channels, you're talking about 13 channels yeah. of data that come from, from a satellite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all these different infrared bands, you have three different water vapor bands instead of one and they're all much higher resolution. Yeah. So these receiving stations really need, you know, have to be up to uh, up, up to date tech wise to, to be able to process all this information. And I would also add to everybody that Tony is the when these satellites came up, it was Tony messaging back and forth with me trying to help me understand what all this stuff was, because, again, it's not like I'm getting pamphlets, you know, it's talking about these new satellites. I'm covering it saying, you know, there's all this new data, but Tony was the one, you know, like I, I there was a, there was a fog and, you know, there was a foggy morning and none of the weather, uh, none of our, uh, weather stations were showing it, but you were on the, you, you were on the floor that morning and you were issuing, you know, um, special weather statements. I'm like, Tony, you know, what's going on? And you were, you showed me some of the new data, which our vendor does not get because to your point, Tony, it's just too much data. Yeah. To yeah. You really have to, it's computer. Like model data. You really have to pick and choose yeah. um, what you, what you, uh, what you look at. Like uh, there's another example, dust and Saharan air layer right. for the tropics. Right. Uh, those are another two products that we never used to have. It just so much is so much has changed yeah. uh, in, in 25 years. Um, like I said, we could do a, a single show on it. Uh, and we, we, we need to, let me ask you one more question. Then I need to let you go for God's sake. You need to get some sleep. Um, <laughs> Mickey's asking, and I think this is fascinating. What's the next big thing for radar advancement? Well, um, there was talk of, um, oh, I got to remember what it's called here. Casa. It was basically neighborhood radars that were l much lower power, but you'd be able to attach them on, um, let me look it up. Like here. an X-band kind of thing? Let me take a look and see what, that's a radar network. Uh, what does it even stand for? As These I'm are, here Googling it, it, it as it's, well. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 they're lower power, but the idea is, and they don't have as much range, um, but they're much smaller and they're easier to, you could put them in theory 
put them in a lot more locations yeah. um, and fill in those gaps. You know, it speaks to the other, the, the question we had, we talked about earlier. Yeah. And, and it would, you know, these, it's almost like quote unquote neighborhood radars. Hmm. Um, they're low power. They're, they're inexpensive. I haven't heard, there was a push for that and it probably started maybe eight, 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but I haven't, I think that's going to be the next kind of the next big thing um, is, is uh, these, these higher resolution, lower power. Like, like an X band kind of thing. Yeah, and and it, it it would basically fill the gaps. Uh, that's kind of the big problem we have with the radars now. It's just filling filling in yeah. those gaps, um, and that that would help. That would help tremendously. You have blown my mind several times this morning. <laughs> I'm so grateful for for your time. Yeah. Listen, go home. I I owe I owe you a coke. Okay. Uh, I, I thank <laughs> right. you so much, Tony, for for hanging with us. All I'm right. going yeah, to. We'll, we'll... We'll do this again sometime. Yeah, I'm going to ask you back. You are beyond a wealth of knowledge. So thank you very much, sir. Thanks. Good right. talking to you. Good, thank you. Uh, Good talking to you, buddy. Interacting with everyone. <laughs> All right. That is Tony Cristaldi, meteorologist over at the National Weather Service office in Melbourne. Um, not only does he have a wealth of knowledge from experience, but a wealth of knowledge because he's just a damn good met. So there's that. Um, all right, listen, it's going to be hot today, people. Lots and lots of heat next couple of days, but we've got some sunshine too. So get in the pool and enjoy. Be the sunshine in someone else's day. I will see you all at 3.30 for the afternoon coffee talk. Thank you all for hanging out. Bye.